Welcome to the Cross the Line Podcast. My name is Carlos Smith, and I have another special guest with me today. She is the owner of Nika White Consultant, and today I have the pleasure of sitting with Dr. Nika White. How are you? I'm well, Carlos. How are you? I'm fine. Thank you for asking. Uh, I'm glad we finally were able to sit down. I know we had to keep rescheduling because sure. we were so busy. Thank you for your patience. Oh, no problem at all. But starting out, um, can you tell us kind of like what is the concept of Nika White Consultant? Sure. So Nikolai Consulting um, is my management consulting firm, which I started back in 2017 at the beginning of the year. And um, it intersects the work of diversity, equity, and inclusion with leadership and business. So I travel all over the country, even have some international travel that I do for some of my clients. And I consult, train, and um, help organizations to think more intently about strategic diversity and inclusion in order to drive organizational performance and overall effectiveness. And how, how did you actually figure out that this was your passion? Was it like, yeah. was it working like multiple diff- different jobs and then something? What was it that made you figure out this was your passion? Well, that's an interesting question, Carlos, because my background is not directly in this discipline, mm-hmm. diversity, equity, and inclusion. This work, I like to say, um, found me. Um, but when I was working in marketing communications, which is my primary background, um, I remember I was with an advertising agency mm-hmm. and I started thinking about how much I really enjoyed that industry. I thought I was going to be in that industry for the long haul. Um, marketing communications was something I was really passionate about. I love the fact that it was very dynamic, always on time, on pace, uh, on strategy, on budget, you know, very fast paced. But I really did appreciate that, that line of work. And I remember sitting in my office one day and I had an epiphany because I started to think about the fact that if I enjoy this career path so much, why aren't there others who look like me as an African-American female Absolutely. that's also taking advantage of what I perceive to be a very rewarding career path? And when I started to really consider the fact that when you work for an advertising agency and you're in marketing communications, it's part of your duty and your charge to be smart marketing partners to the clients in which you're servicing. And considering that those clients, their audience, their consumers are diverse America, I knew that we needed to be also more forward thinking in our approach to diversity and inclusion. So I wanted to try to change that. Um, outcome. Um, and I remember going to the president CEO of the agency I was working for at the time. Uh, he was very hands-on. I had a great rapport with him and I shared a similar narrative that I'm sharing with you. Mm-hmm. And I knew at the time that the BHAG, the big, hairy, audacious goal for the agency was to become the most admired agency. And I also knew that um, I was in between New York office um, and the Greenville office. And whenever I would visit the New York office, I knew that the attorney general was really focusing all of, of, of the efforts on trying to get those agencies within those large markets like Chicago and New York to think more intently about diversifying the workforce. And so they were knocking on the doors of those agencies saying, you have to diversify your workforce. This is not a suggestion. It's a mandate. We'll be back in six months to see how you're doing. Well, no one was thinking about Greenville, South Carolina, which is where I was employed at the time. Um, but if we are going to be the leaders of this work, again, that was the BHAC, most admired agency, I knew that we needed to start showing leadership in that regard. So I went to the president CEO, um, shared this narrative. He listened very intently and then proceeded to ask very thought-provoking questions. And we had really great dialogue. At the end of that conversation, he said, Nika, I agree. We're going to do it. You're going to lead it. Now tell us how. And I was prepared for everything in that conversation with the exception of now tell us how. But I did know how to um, put really smart people in my camp that were already quite accomplished at doing this work in their respective organizations. And I realized at that time that all along, while I didn't know it, I was really drawn to this work of diversity, equity and inclusion. And so from there, it just um, created opportunities for me to be able to work full time into this space. Mm -hmm. Was there ever a moment of fear? That, that you had when you were trying to figure out, like, yeah, it was time to do my own business? Yeah, I think that fear is um, a, a natural, um, you know, feeling for many people when you are transitioning to something that's different. Anything mm-hmm. that requires change sometimes can require that anxiety or fear. Um, for me, I was really driven by my passion for the work. I was driven by my curiosity and my confidence of my own ability. And again, as I mentioned before, not that I had the skill sets and that discipline, but I had the wherewithal to know how to immerse myself as a student of that industry to become, you know, really smart, really quick on the work, the importance of the work, how to execute it quite effectively. And I relied on a lot of, um, again, partners and mentors that were already very accomplished in that regard. And so 
Um, I have a tendency to be one of those individuals that I'm quite driven, so I don't let fear keep me from really moving forward. I think sometimes that a little bit of fear can be healthy because it causes us to really make sure we're on our P's and Q's Mm -hmm. and that we execute at a high level. Um, But, you know, that's not to say that there weren't days where I felt like, you know, am I doing this correctly? And so I'll I'll share that there were times where we fumbled, but I was okay with that. My counterparts were okay with that because we were at least – making progress we were at least in the game we were we were facilitating some level of activity that was leading towards um, best practices and we soon found that people were knocking on our doors but not for any kind of mandates more so because they wanted to benchmark against what we were doing so um, I was able to leverage that momentum and and traction to keep me um, level-headed and not let the fear to really sink in to where it could have been to my detriment. You, you talk, you just said um, how you and your team suffered some little humps and along the way. Yeah. What, what's the biggest thing that you take from setbacks from time? I think the setbacks are necessary. In fact, sometimes I feel as though if I'm not making mistakes, that means I'm not stretching myself. Mm-hmm. And so that's really important for me. Um, I never want to feel too comfortable because um, comfortable leads to complacency. Mm-hmm. And I think that we have to be willing to push ourselves and we have to be willing to set stretch goals and to step out of our comfort zone. And mm-hmm. so I was not afraid to make those mistakes. Um, I think that the only problem with mistakes is when you continue to make them and you don't grow and learn from them. And so for me, it was all about refinement. Once the mistakes were made, we would sit down, we would talk, we would think, you know, what can we do differently to make sure that the outcomes the next time we will go um, to try to attempt this endeavor, we would be successful. And so that that's part of life. It's part of growth. And it's a growth mindset that I was fortunate to be able to learn early on. Um, and I, I certainly impart that knowledge to anyone that I find to be a part of my inner circle and my network. One of my uh, previous interviews with uh, Mr. Ben Howell was Big Ben's dessert. That was one of my favorite things that he said to me at the time was that sometimes you you miss out on your blessings if you just stay in your comfort zone. So you have to, you know, challenge yourself and, and, and push yourself to, to do more. So what, what do you feel like was that opportunity for you? Was it a specific opportunity that you felt like was the one that opened up one door that just kept on, continued to open up more and more doors yeah. from marketing or was it a specific thing? That's a great question, Carlos. And I will answer that from the perspective of, you know, gravitating to this new discipline, this new career path that was vastly different from just marketing communications. Because while that was where my start um, came in terms of, you know, transitioning to diversity, equity, and inclusion, I was in a dual role while I was working in the advertising agency. It did allow me to um, be able to gravitate towards other roles. Mm -hmm. that were directly related to diversity, equity, and inclusion. So, for example, after doing that work um, for the agency that I was employed with at the time, maybe five or six years thereafter, I ended up getting the position of VP of Diversity and Inclusion for the Greenville Chamber. Mm -hmm. And that gave me a much broader platform to be able to do this work and gain greater exposure and visibility and work with a variety of of clients and, and, and organizations, private, public sector um, but yeah, so we, we can't deny ourselves of the, the growth opportunities, and that requires us to see those opportunities as a blessing. I can tell you that when I transitioned to the chamber, um, that was a great learning opportunity for me because I'm a woman of faith, and I remember that I recognize that on paper the position was only funded for three years. It was a newly created position, so they were trying something. And I knew that um, the history of the organization was not such to where it was seen as being a staple for furthering the work of diversity, you know, economic inclusion. And so I knew that my my job was cut out for me. I was going to have to really rely on um, faith and, um, you know, my ability to surround myself with, you know, intelligent people that could help provide that level of support and technical assistance. And so that could have kept me from going after that position, but mm-hmm. uh, it was the best decision that I made. And they did a national search. I was the lucky beneficiary that was right in their backyard to assume the position. And honestly, it is precisely what led me to then um, launch my own management consulting firm is because I saw that there was such a need for the work and I was being called upon by many different organizations to help them facilitate the work within their respective organizations. And so we can't be afraid. We have to step out on faith. We have to make sure that we're doing all that we can to prepare ourselves for those opportunities. I will tell you that while I was in the midst of really learning my craft and the discipline of diversity, equity, and inclusion, I heavily invested in um, new knowledge, new new tools, new resources to equip myself to be prepared for 
when that next opportunity would present itself. Um, so for example, that's when I decided to go back and get my doctorate in management and organizational leadership. And that was a great alignment to this work of diversity, equity, and inclusion. Mm-hmm. Um, I started writing books once I became much more well-versed on um, the work of diversity, equity, and inclusion. And that opened up a lot of doors for me. So my point is there are two main um, opportunities people have to keep in mind. The first is we can't be afraid. We have to step out. We have to have stretch goals. And then secondly, we must prepare ourselves. Faith without works is dead. So we must prepare ourselves for when that opportunity um, will come. And so that's what benefited me. Speaking of um, opportunities, I know um, I saw you and your husband, you you also have a foundation. Can you talk a little bit about your foundation? Sure. Yes. So my husband of almost 22 years, um, he's also a business owner. And so I like to say that we are equally yoked from a standpoint of really being driven and ambitious about our business endeavors, our careers, and about being community advocates and really um, community outreach. And so earlier this year, we launched Carlo Nicolite Foundation. And, you know, there's several different principles that align with our interest of, you know, where we want to provide financial support and lend our skill sets and our talent to help further different efforts in the community. One of which is entrepreneurship, particularly as it relates to helping um, minorities to advance within the the entrepreneur world. And so as entrepreneurs ourselves, we have um, provided grants, you know, so far totaling over $11,000 to um, business startups that are um, minority owned and, and, and even conducted an entrepreneur leadership seminar whereby we're helping um, businesses to grow and thrive, learn how to transition from working in their business to on their business, allowing them to grow, compete effectively in the marketplace and create jobs. And that's a passion area for us. We also are real big on education, and so we've aligned our efforts through the foundation with Legacy Early College Mm -hmm. and um, through a program called LIT, which stands for Leadership and Training, Mm -hmm. Uh, and it's a group of um, African-American men who are really trying to find their way. They're trying to beat the odds, and in spite of what people say their outcome is going to be, they have great support through the school system, and we want it to be a part of that. And so this leadership training opportunity um, is something that we're closely connected to. We also provide scholarships. Um, We're going to be giving out $5,000 in scholarships through our partnership with the Urban League of the Upstate in January as part of the MLK weekend. We have partnered with Phyllis Wheatley to uh, help them to provide um, better accommodations within their space, whereby they are trying to establish an incubator for business owners, particularly mm-hmm. minority business owners. And again, since that's in alignment with our area of interest, um, we have um, provided resources to help them be able to outfit that space accordingly and a number of other things that we have on the horizon. Mm-hmm. But, you know, our goal is to get back at the center of all of our efforts. Christ is right there. So we are really guided by um, Christ, commerce, and community. I certainly have some education questions that I want to ask, but <laughs> I, I don't want to stick to um, the foundation for a second. Sure. Um, as far as your foundation, how do you know when you, when you talk about funding a minority business, what do you look for when you want to fund a business? Yeah, no, that's a great question. And uh, we have a really robust process that we have implemented with the first round of grants that we have been able to award. And it's through an application process. And through that um, process, we ask questions about their business. We want to know their business vision and mission. We want to understand more about um, their own personal commitment to investing in themselves and their business, because mm-hmm. that's important to us if we're going to invest in you. We want to know that you're also making the investment in yourself. We are interested in the type of business. And so we want to know, is it something that has room to, again, create jobs for people and to grow and to thrive? Um, So is there really a a need for it in the community? Um, And, you know, through those efforts, it gives us an opportunity to really glean the level of um, profitability, the potential that the company has. We also sit down one-on-one. We have a selection committee of others that join forces with us. And um, so the group collectively, we sit down with those candidates one-on-one for an interview. We do a deeper dive to understand what their challenges are, what their barriers are. It's important to us not only make a selection to be able to give financial support to, but equally important what we're looking for. Do we have some resources, by the way, of human capital organizations um, that can help also those businesses with their growth goals? And um, that tends to have um, certainly a, a, a consideration set when we're determining 
which organizations to award. And when you find them the money, do you still try to stay hands-on with the business to make yes. sure they're doing what they're doing or yes. do you let them No, go? absolutely, absolutely. And so, you know, we ask, what do you plan to do with these dollars? You know, mm -hmm. how is it going to help take your business to the next level? And the answer to that is really important to us because if it's something that we feel as though whatever the funding amount that we can provide is not really going to help um, position them and propel them to the next level, then, you know, we have to think intently about, is this really going to be um, the impact that we're seeking? And so, but yes, our goal is to not just provide one and done type of investment and walk away. Our goal is to treat that as an opportunity to build relationships, to stay in close contact with them, to leverage, again, whatever type of knowledge base my husband and I have and the resources that are within our network to help them to propel themselves to the next level. And so um, that is a very significant part of um, the decision-making process. And you said you and your husband are both entrepreneurs. When, when did you guys both realize for the were y'all entrepreneurs before y'all met or did y'all come together and then finally say, you know what, entrepreneurship is like the yeah. way for us? Well, so I always say that my husband has been the inspiration for me to launch out on my own as an entrepreneur. He is what I refer to as a serial entrepreneur. He has successfully grown a number of businesses, even to the point where he, um, his most recent business, he grew it to a point where he was able to sell it and uh -huh. then capitalize on, you know, the dollars from that sell to then start a new business venture, which is doing incredibly well right now. And so um, we have what's what we refer to as um, white holdings and under white holdings, we have a number of business ventures. The one of which would be um, my husband's, trucking transportation logistics company mm -hmm. um and of course my my consulting firm falls under white holdings we also have a division of white holdings where we um, invest in a lot of real estate um we have some airbnb properties we have some properties that we run out we have a lot of properties that we may go in and then refurbish renovate and then flip um so we really believe in multiple streams of income um the, the business that my husband was able to sell was an insurance business and so he ran that for several years and um and so you know we have the experience of not being afraid to go after um, entrepreneur endeavors and to see them grow and thrive and so when i say that he was my inspiration i always kind of saw myself continuing to be in corporate america you know working in that capacity i was very comfortable and again, going back to we have to step out of our comfort zone. I remember once I started working specifically in the discipline of diversity, equity, and inclusion, and I was getting tapped, you know, left and right by people to just want to pick my brain or want to, you know, um, pay me to come in and consult with them. I realized that this is a potential opportunity to turn into a business. Mm -hmm. And I mentioned that I worked for several years at the Greenville Chamber, and part of my role and function there was to help facilitate initiatives that would help foster economic inclusion, particularly for minority businesses. And so in that regard, I was around entrepreneurs all the time. And so I guess you could say I caught the entrepreneur bug by being in the presence of all of those companies and also being married to someone that was really already devoted to entrepreneurship and had great success in that regard. Who, who would you say were some of your mentors? Because you were so well-rounded and, and you very educated. Who would you say were some of your mentors that helped you learn every yeah. soak up everything that you know? Yeah, that's a great question. So I'm really big on mentorships and not only just seeking mentors and having mentors to help you professionally and personally grow, but also being able to pay it forward by serving as a mentor to others. And so mm -hmm. I'm very, I am, again, just a, a big advocate of mentorships. And so a lot of my mentors have been, um, they, they've run across several different demographics. One of the things that I tell people all the time is that it's not a good idea just to have one singular mentor because mm -hmm. that puts a lot of pressure on one person because the, the, the reality is that we should have mentors for different areas of our lives um, and not expecting just one person to be able to be that model for who you want to emulate in every area of your life. And so, for mm -hmm. example, I have a mentor that um, really helps keeps, keeps me grounded spiritually I have a mentor, several mentors that are actually in the same discipline that I'm in that are much more um, advanced in their experience working directly in the field of diversity, equity, and inclusion that I call on um, at different times. Um, I have, you know, mentors for a lot of the boards of directors that I serve on, uh, particularly mm -hmm. the boards that maybe I am relatively new to. There's some that are more seasoned and they have, you know, provided me with a great deal of insight to help me ensure that I'm being an effective board member. And so um, generally speaking, it just really depends on what I'm looking for. Mm -hmm. And I always encourage people to do the same thing. Just make sure you're very intentional about building that relationship so that the person understands what is it you're seeking to grow and to learn from that they may be able to help impart it to you. 
with, with mentors, um, this is kind of a two-part question. A, do you think it's a such thing as having too many mentors? And then B, are you ever too old to have a mentor? So let me answer the, the latter question first. No, I don't think that anyone is ever too old to have a mentor. And one of the things I tell people is that, again, you don't want to just seek a mentor that may be in the same um, ethnicity or race that you're in. You want to mm-hmm. seek mentors that are of different genders, that are of different um, race, ethnicities, different even disciplines. Sometimes the tendency is to gravitate to people who are already directly in the work that you're doing. And sometimes that could be beneficial, but sometimes um, it's also important to seek out people that may have other perspectives and other experience Mm -hmm. that can help to round you out. And so you're never too old to um, seek out mentors. I think that it's a two-way rewarding relationship. And the other question is, can you have too many you know, I, I think the answer to that is it really depends. It depends on what you seek from that particular mentor relationship. You know, I have some mentees that um, I maybe only talk to, I would say, maybe six times a year. And the, the nature of that relationship is that, you know, they aspire to hone their skill sets in an area that um, I have a lot of experience in. And so they kind of use me as a sounding board when they need me and they know to call on me. And then in, in those particular situations, we will certainly have a lot of banter and I will, you know, ask some thought provoking questions to get them to start thinking intently about other areas because, you know, your job as a mentor is not to tell people what to do is to give them perspective, to give them resources that can help them to um, ensure that they're thinking about it in a very holistic way and then to help support them. So that way they are led to conclusions on their own about what they should do. And so, again, that's why I say it's, it's really a, it depends type of answer in terms of how many, right. because some of us may have different you know, goals and you may want to align your mentor relationships with those different goals that you have. And sometimes it could be a personal goal. It could be a professional goal. But sometimes it's natural for people within our workplaces to automatically kind of serve as that mentor to us or that sponsor to us. Right. Um, so it really depends. As an entrepreneur, African-American female entrepreneur, did you feel like your success was harder for you to climb up that ladder for success as a female entrepreneur? Yeah, I can definitely see how for many um, females and particular minority females, the difficulty that could could be present and when you're trying to propel yourself to the next level. And certainly I have, you know, experienced some barriers, but I think that um, what has helped me tremendously is that I have always been the type of person, and a lot of this has to do with the values that were placed upon me from, you know, my parents growing up, you know, to truly believe that nothing was impossible. And again, when you are a person of, of great faith, you you, you don't let, allow those obstacles to keep you from really charting a pathway of success. And so if you end up finding that there's an obstacle in front of you, you you find a way to work around it. You become very resourceful. You become very resilient to understand that sometimes a door is being closed for a reason. Maybe there's another door that's more appropriate for you that God's going to open up later down the road. But nonetheless, you just keep trying. You keep putting forth your best effort. You keep elevating excellence and you keep representing yourself um, quite well. And then I have found that that strategy leads to opportunities, you know, in and of itself, you know, for example, um, I will be celebrating two years with my business in February wow. of 2018. Oh, actually February of 2019. 2019. And so when I think about the fact that I'm not even at the two year mark and um, I am blessed to where I can be very selective with the clients and the opportunities that I say yes and I say no to. Um, and I think that that's a testament to um, the the favor that God has placed on my life, but also the ability that he has given me to um, know my craft well, to to be a student of my industry mm-hmm. and to really want to deliver high quality services to clients that leads to impact. And, um, and I think that if once you have that mindset and you govern yourself accordingly, that regardless of your background, who you are, being female, being minority, et cetera, it um, certainly opens up opportunities for you to realize the the fruit of your labor. Do you feel like women in general, overall, though, they get overlooked for opportunities? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely, they mm-hmm. do. I think that there's, we still live in a society to where there are a lot of career paths that are heavily dominated by men, and they are not seen as quite friendly to women. Mm-hmm. You know, tech, and you hear a lot about STEM these days, particularly trying to really diversify career fields and, and, and technology and, and that sort of thing. And um, so I think that the, the propensity is still there for people to not 
um, have gender parity. Um, but I think that if we aren't careful as women, particularly as minority women, that we can fall into the trap of believing that that's so and maybe, you know, um, succumb to the, the victim mentality versus continuing to try to drive ourselves towards, um, you know, greater opportunities. And so, I try not to let that get in my way. I'm, I'm a very, I'm a realist. And so I understand that it's there, especially as someone that does the work of diversity, equity, and inclusion. Absolutely. I see it every day. I teach about it every day. I consult about it every day. But personally for my life, I have just not allowed that to be a tremendous factor to what I can give and what I can offer. And I yeah. always see it as an opportunity to just um, overcompensate where sometimes some of those things can um you know, create a barrier, just overcompensate and do what I can, control what I can. I can't control other people, but I can't control my reaction to Absolutely. other people. I don't want to get too political or anything, but, you know, under this pre- presidency of President Trump, you know, a lot of things have come out and uh, like some like things like the Me Too movement and, mm-hmm. and different things like that. Do you feel like now with him in office, it kind of helped bring more light to women and, and bring that out more because some of the things he says. And another point was, I, I can't remember, I was, I was listening to a podcast and they felt like that, <clears throat> excuse me, that if <clears throat> maybe if Hillary would have gotten into office and would have won, it would have just been like she was just a symbol of women empowerment, but maybe things may not have gotten done. But since President Trump is in office now and some of the things that he said and how it's just heightened the sensitivity of a lot of different things, that it's kind of helped with... Uh, bring a spotlight to how women are being, you know, discriminated against and things like that. Yeah. I'm not going to begin to speculate on, you know, whose ever leadership would have or would not have led us to a different position that we're in right now. I mean, I will say that I don't think that one singular person has the complete power to change mindsets, behaviors, and culture of, you know, our society in general. Um, but I will say that um, a lot of the positions that Trump has, has taken, um, I think that it's given greater power and greater momentum to people like myself who are in this discipline of diversity, equity, and inclusion, mm-hmm. because it drives us to want to um, bring greater emphasis to the work and the need for the work and the importance of the work. And so I try to focus on that. Um you know, I, I, I definitely believe that um, our leaders have a great deal of responsibility to help um, facilitate inclusion and make sure that everyone feels like they have an opportunity for success. Mm-hmm. And there have been opportunities where I feel like um, I have personally been disappointed at um, the missed opportunities to really help facilitate that by our, our, our current leader. Um, but, you know, when that happens, I think it just yields a greater opportunity for each of us to dig our heels into the ground and say, well, what can we do to make a difference? You know, I mean, that's why I always say, I don't think it's up to one singular person to try to change the the outcome. It's up to all of us to do what we can within the sphere of influence that we have um, to make a difference. And so Mm -hmm. that's what I really focus a lot of my attention on. Do you feel more obligated? Of course, you say you like to help minorities, but especially do you feel obligated to kind of help women, you know, push through? Yeah, I'm all I'm all about um, advancing women and Mm -hmm. empowering women and equipping women. You know, a lot of the times when I do speaking engagements, many most often, you know, it can be to women audiences. And so that that is an area that I'm very passionate about, you know, as a female myself. Um, I have a daughter who's a freshman in college, and I want every opportunity that she desires to be within her reach. And so I will always be an advocate of um, the underrepresented in general. And so that certainly includes women in a lot of spaces, and it most definitely includes people of color. Earlier this year, I had uh, a sit down with about 12, 12 women, and they had a My Black is Beautiful movement in downtown mm-hmm. Spartanburg. And mm-hmm. they were just talking about the adversities that black women you know, face. In, yeah. in society today and one of the things that we talked about was the me too movement sure. do, but and and not i don't want to sound insensitive of anything and one of the things that i asked them was do you feel like with the me too movement that we could potentially be heading down a slippery slope and what i mean by that is one person can come out and say that hey you did something to them and then it's just like more and more people just pile on. Are you? Are, do you feel like that could kind of head us, make us head down a slippery slope to where even if it's not true, but people are just piling on that it just makes you look guilty? Yeah, well, I think that at any given time when you have a population of people who feel more comfortable to express situations that they've been exposed to that mm-hmm. um, highlights negativity for others, then 
you know, there's certainly that risk involved, but um, that doesn't exonerate us of the responsibility to give that person the benefit of the doubt and facilitate the due diligence to do the proper investigation and the research to make sure that, um, you know, the, the, the facts come to the surface. And right. so, you know, I, I applaud all of the women that have worked very diligently and been a voice for those who may not have felt quite as comfortable stepping forward. And I think that we need more of that. You know, quite honestly, I've, I've, I've heard someone say before that these things have, you know, it's not that they're getting more and more prevalent. It's just that people are more and more comfortable talking about them because right. of those brave souls who have stepped forward. And so yeah. um, I, I I don't worry about the slippery slope um, type mm-hmm. of, you know, potential downfall because I, I see it as um, just greater responsibility on all of our part to really give the, give it the attention that it deserves. Why, why do you feel like some women and people who are sexual harassed in the workplace, why do you feel like they may not have spoken up in the past? I think it's a lot of different reasons. I think a lot of it may have to do with the person that perhaps they were um, victimized by, um, the perpetrator. You know, we're finding that a lot of these individuals are in very powerful positions within their organizations and, you know, who would want to put themselves in a predicament where they are risking their jobs, you know, who wants to put themselves in a predicament to where they're risking whether or not people will believe them just because maybe they don't have the same stature and the same type of position or title as those mm-hmm. people in power. I think that has a huge deal to do with it. I think that sometimes, um, there's a lot of internalized guilt because we live in a society to where, whether it's intentional or unintentional, when that those situations occur, it causes women to question themselves. Mm-hmm. You know, could I have done something differently? And, you know, the bottom line is that um, that becomes irrelevant from my vantage point. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that a no is no and respect is respect. And um, we have to make sure that we're not crossing the line or creating some gray area where people may seem as though, regardless of what maybe someone may wear or, or you know, their personal personality, whatever the case may be, There's, it, it's never appropriate for someone to um, infringe upon the space and the safety and the comfort of anyone else. And so um, I think there are some legitimate reasons why some women have decided to be silent. And I think that what the Me Too movement has done is it's brought about greater level of comfort in speaking up. Um, and even though some people may question, you know, a lot of time has passed. Why this is years ago? Why are you just mm-hmm. now bringing it forward? You know, we we have to give people the benefit of the doubt. We're not necessarily always in their shoes to know what they were thinking when it occurred and why they made the decisions that they made. But I truly believe that every particular situation deserves the due diligence of proper investigation, and that's really for both sides. You know, I, I say that not to only you know, express that the benefit of the doubt should always be given to the women only. I think Mm -hmm. that, you know, there are some people who may not have um, correct or proper intentions and maybe they are trying to jump on, you know, a bandwagon that gets them Mm -hmm. um, some type of attention that maybe that they're seeking. And so I think that it it protects both the men and the women um, when situations are brought to the surface that require some type of investigation to occur for that investigation to occur in a way with full diligence. And, it's, and it still seems like at times, though, even if you prove innocent in a situation, just having that attached to your name, well, you know, such and such may have gotten caught up in a situation in the past, and then he was later proven innocent, yeah. it still sticks with you, and sometimes they can... It does. One of the things that I often say when I'm facilitating um, talks is that, you know, we have to be much more willing as a society to extend grace and accept grace. Sure. Because... Um, you know, unless we were in someone's shoes, we don't know what we would do or how we would mm-hmm. respond. And I feel like every circumstance is very circumstantial, you know, mm-hmm. and without all the facts in, in hand, it's hard for us to say what we would do. And so I think that we need to become much more sensitized to the need to extend grace and accept grace and assume positive intent. Um, because it's like you said, it's hard. You know, there have been many people who have been exonerated from some of the alleged, you know, behaviors or, or charges that have been brought against them. And, you know, their reputation is now stained by that. And that's also unfair. Absolutely. And so I am, I'm, I'm very sensitized to the consequences on both sides. And, and that's why I, I brought up the importance of the due diligence and the full investigative process. Um, so that the, the truth can eventually come out and um, people can, um, 
stop perceiving others in a way that may not be fair based upon the facts. Absolutely. I, I want to talk about one of your articles that you wrote. I thought it was really interesting. Uh, the equality and equity article. And you were mm -hmm. saying that equality, everyone has access to the same thing. And, and equity is everyone has access to where they need to be successful. Mm -hmm. Do you feel like everyone has the same opportunity? No, absolutely they don't. You know? And um, it relates a lot to this overarching conversation around privilege. Um, as well as to the conversation of where does equity sit in the equation of inclusion. And the reason that I speak to it a lot, so much so to where I've written white papers and written articles about it, as you've referenced, mm -hmm. is because I find that if we don't um, inter intersect the, the notion of e equity to the conversation of inclusion, then we tend to be misguided um, and we are not really hitting the mark in terms of the solutions and the initiatives that we want to implement in order to help foster greater inclusion. And what I mean by that is we live in a society where we're so conditioned by uh, being fair. You know, mm -hmm. we've grown up as kids to where fairness is what you need to accept, mm -hmm. right? It needs, everything needs to be fair. And I have two kids and they're very close in age. And I remember as kids, if you give one something, the other one has been looking for the same thing. Yeah. And my husband and I, from a parenting perspective, we always kind of govern ourselves from the standpoint that each child is different. So what we may set and regulate and decide for one child may not necessarily be the same for the other child. And we always felt that was the proper way. Um, I don't think that as a society, we always consider that aspect when we're just dealing with people in general, especially as it relates to the workplace or just in societal systems mm -hmm. that exist. You know, it, as you referenced that I put in my article, you know, equality is when we give everybody the same thing. And the assumption is that when you give everybody the same thing, that everybody has the opportunity to be successful. Well, the challenge with that is everyone does not start at the same place. Absolutely. And some people are privileged to where there are things that has nothing at all to do with them that has allowed them to get maybe a couple steps ahead of others. And so if we're not all starting at the same place, but yet and still our objective is success for everyone, mm -hmm. then we have to give people what they need and not just what everyone else is getting to help bridge the gap and to help make sure that there's greater opportunity of success for everyone. And one of the examples that I always like to give would be uh, thinking about higher learning institutions and how in which they may have first-generation college student programs. And they do that very intentionally because when they define success, success is all about their graduation rates. Mm -hmm. They want all of their students to matriculate through their institutions, being quite successful, and that means they're going to graduate and then hopefully be able to go on to apply their education to all types of industries and careers. And so when a student is first gen, they don't necessarily have a parent or older sibling to go to to help ask questions like, mm -hmm. how do I navigate this particular situation as part of my college career? You know, how do I have the appropriate study skills? They don't have that go-to resource within their inner circle to be able to, to ask those questions of. And um, in organizations, higher learning institutions, they recognize that. And by research, it states that a lot of those first-gen students are the ones who find themselves not being able to complete their education because either they will find it too difficult, too many barriers, not know how to navigate their college um, career, and so they will end up dropping out. And sometimes, you know, when you call home, those first-gen students, instead of being met with, oh, well, it's okay, you know, you know, dig deep and find that grit and that resiliency, mm -hmm. get back in there, try again, tomorrow will be a better day. Sometimes they're met with information um, that's, well, you know, come on home, it's fine, get a job, no big deal. Mm -hmm. And it's because, again, those parents and those older siblings, they have, they have not had a different experience. Exactly. And so those higher learning institutions, they recognize that. And so they'll put forth special programming, whether it's, you know, special scholarships or technical support and assistance, mentors and coaches to help those first-gen students to be successful. So that's a um, just an example of how having a lens of equity can help provide greater opportunities for those that may not otherwise be able to matriculate towards success naturally. Do you, do you feel like education nowadays is just enough, though, because like you were saying, everybody doesn't start at the same start the race at the same place mm -hmm. but at times you know two people can have a degree but a lot of times you may not get out you may be more qualified than somebody but just because the employer feels more comfortable with the other person yeah. then they'll give it to the other right. person so i call that bias it's it's strictly unconscious bias implicit bias whatever you like however you like to refer to it but it's dangerous and it's toxic and it certainly does Read situations where people that are deserving of considerations that 
um, may not even be in the consideration set. And so we have to break down a lot of that bias. We have to help disrupt that bias and allow people to understand how they can become more consciously inclusive versus, you know, to just be driven by the fact that, you know, as human beings, we all have propensity to be biased. And I do recognize that. Mm-hmm. And it's not it's not something to feel as though now it makes me a bad person, but you do want to be knowledgeable about it. And you do want to acknowledge the fact that we do have the ability for bias to creep up into our decision-making ability, into our interactions with others. But that's not enough um, to just say that we have it. We have to try to also find ways to equip ourselves with skill sets to become more mindful of when it does occur, how can we ensure that it's not to the detriment of someone else? But how, how do we break that barrier? Because I, I remember when I was working for, uh, when I was writing for Black Sports Online, and uh, one of our articles that came out, it was a, one, a guy came on, he was another journalist for another company. He he was talking about how the his, his manager that was doing the hiring process was just like going through applications. And if he saw that you were like an African-American or somebody of color, he would just automatically just throw your application mm-hmm. away. So it's like, how do we kind of break that barrier? Yeah, there are a lot of things. The first thing I would repeat again, I think that it has a lot to do with um, training and um, skill set building that can help people to first and foremost recognize their propensity for mm-hmm. bias to creep into their decision making. And then secondly, equipping them to have the skill sets to know how to disrupt that unconscious bias. And I do a lot of sessions and training on that with many of my clients. And a lot of it has to do with becoming more mindful. You know, if you practice greater situational awareness and greater mindfulness, then you're able to notice when bias is occurring. Mm Because that's why it's dangerous. It's it's called unconscious for a reason, because we don't even know that it's occurring. And so what we have to do is train ourselves to become much more mindful and aware of our situation. Um, And then once we are aware, that gives us greater ability to be able to potentially change the outcome, to question where do we have these views, where are they coming from, to trace it back to the point of origination. I always use the example when I'm I'm training that imagine, if you will, that all of us has this invisible record inside of us. Mm -hmm. And everything that we've been exposed to since day one, since birth, is being um, stored on that record. And that, that record is not just accurate information, but it's also inaccurate information, like stereotypes and assumptions that we have. Either maybe we have them because we have experienced them for ourselves, or perhaps they have been things we've heard from the media, or maybe there have been people within our family or you know institutions we've been a part of that have had sentiments that have been negative about certain groups of people on identities. And that's been stored. It doesn't mean that we necessarily explicitly endorse those things or even believe Mm -hmm. them, but they're there and they can surface at any given time. And so just being aware of really how unconscious bias works, I think gives us greater ability to notice when it's occurring and we can help try to disrupt that. It kind of made me, this just made me think about something, you know, with with stereotypes. A lot of times, you know, I, I came up in sports doing sports broadcasts. So a lot of times, I'm heavy on sports, so when a lot of times they show like players, star players on teams, they'll show how they came up. ESPN will do a special how they came mm-hmm. up, a broken home, yeah. or, or one parent, or, and different things like that. Mm-hmm. Do you feel like those kind of things play into how the fact of how they see like at times African Americans, people of color? Well, I think it does, but I have actually two different schools of thought about it. I think mm-hmm. on one hand, um, someone could question why do all of those stories have to be about the person being broke, busted, and disgusted right. to finally reach this level of fame. Or, mm-hmm. um, But I think that what it shows is just the reality of so many people um, of color in particular have to persevere. Not to say that others that are part of the majority group don't have to experience certain shortcomings in their lives that causes them to have to really dig deep to find that grit and that resiliency. But we tend to see it more so with people of color, particularly mm-hmm. those that have come from backgrounds where um, they could have been a product of their environment. But, you know, they have had people in their circle that have supported them and helped them to get to a level of success. And so I think that is the reality of, you know, of of the stories and the narratives that are out there about many Mm -hmm. people. But I also love the fact that it has this incredible way of just demonstrating that no matter where you come from, no matter what your background or your circumstances, ultimately, at the end of the day, it is up to each of us to um, try to find a way to fight through that and to change that narrative for others. And so, yeah. Should, should the lack of education, you know, hinder people from those opportunities or those athletes at times, do you feel like? I think education is so important. So I am of the belief that if we can change the way in which society 
um, places value on education in terms of who gets the experiences, who gets to be a part of those schools that are well-resourced and, um, you know, that have the best teachers. Mm-hmm. I think that those decisions create a huge opportunity for us to become even more diligent about helping our young people to track a pathway of success, particularly those that find themselves in Title I schools um, because I, I think that those are the schools that oftentimes are not quite as well resourced mm-hmm. and they are not quite as innovative in their approach to try to meet those kids where they are, helping to bridge the gap. You know, you can't just focus on the, 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 the four walls of that school classroom in terms of just, you know, the academics. You have to think holistically about what's going on at home that could be um, providing this barrier from that particular student being able to show up at their best at school, mm-hmm. you know? And so there are a lot of different things that we have to consider. And it reminds me of um, On Track, which is the program that the United Way of Greenville County has been greatly responsible for with a number of other uh, partners. But, you know, they really take a holistic approach and they put in place intervention strategies because they recognize that those Title I schools in which they're focused on, it has nothing to do just with the the time that they're at school, but also what happens when the student is released back into the home. Right. And so I think that we have to become much more innovative and creative in solving um, the problems holistically in order to see greater outcomes. And I, I feel like school, I I think it's, it's great. You need your education, but it's, at the same time, you know, I feel like they don't at times prepare us for the real world and, and some of the things that's, that's to come yeah. after school. Like it's, it teaches you, and one of the books I, I reference is uh, Rich Dad, Poor Dad. Just, oh, I love that book. Yeah, yes. I love the book. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And he just, and he was just saying, you know, it school really teaches you in a way, in a sense to, you know, just go to school and make good grades and, and be yeah. a, a good employer. But it doesn't teach you like real life skills when when things go wrong. It just feels like to me, I feel like at times we may be shortchanged by the education system. It needs to and it needs to be fixed. Yeah, no, Carlos, I think you're right. And I think that there are a lot of entities that are starting to realize that and they're starting to be more intentional about how do we bridge that gap? You know, Mm -hmm. one of the things I know that the Greenville Chamber does quite effectively is they are pretty great about convening the business community with the education sector and having the two to talk about what are you seeing that's not being met by the education system that Mm -hmm. employers are looking for and then vice versa. And it, it really helps to bring about greater partnerships. You know, we have seen that a lot um, of the educators are starting to think more intently about how do we help those students to build their soft skills because those are equally important. Mm-hmm. And even how do we start to um, reframe the conversations where we're not just speaking of um, furthering your education from getting a four-year degree, but maybe it's a technical you know, degree because those are mm-hmm. high-paying jobs as well. And not everyone is necessarily destined to go to college. And it doesn't make them um, a person that has less potential to be successful. It just means that their pathway is different. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of people these days to where entrepreneurship could be um, something that, you know, they could excel in. Mm -hmm. And so are we presenting that as an option to our young people? I think we should. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Because, um, you know, me and my friends, we talk all the time. And I said in some other interviews, we about education for me at times I think you know I don't know if if I had I had my degree from USC Upstate and I don't know at times if I had to do it all over again I don't know if I would go back and do it again because it's just the debt that it puts you in and it's just like it's hard to you know they say you'll make so much more than the average person who doesn't go to get a degree but it's Mm -hmm. like the debt that you had to go through to pay all these bills back that's a big conversation that keeps surfacing and in fact there are a lot of tech companies in general that have gravitated from even requiring a four-year college degree Mm -hmm. you know so i mean i one of the things that has become important to me and i mentioned early on that through our foundation we um do work with um, legacy charter school and through this lit program leaders in training And, you know, their motto is they want to make sure that students, you know, do matriculate to college. And and I think that's important, but I think it's important from the standpoint of they need to know that that is within reach for them. They can attain that. But Mm -hmm. if they also decide, you know what, even though college is within reach for me, if I have this other very solid plan where I'm going to follow this other pathway where maybe I get um, a uh, a technical degree or I will take up a trade and then I take allow that that knowledge base to then allow me to establish maybe a business. I mean, there's multiple ways to be successful. And I think that where... Um, sometimes we 
it's a missed opportunity is if we don't allow our young people to know that there are multiple ways in which to be successful. Uh, one of, Mr. Willis Forrest, he works over at the Sunshine House Academy, mm -hmm. and also he's a professor. And we we had we had two different ideas. He said that he felt like, you know, one of the things he probably would have done differently if he didn't have a full scholarship to play football was, you know, maybe go to like a two year school yeah. and that way and then go to a, a go on to get his degree at a four year yeah. school. But I, I felt like for me, I was like I would tell people, you know, if you don't if school is not for everybody, that's for one thing. Yeah. And But I, I feel like, you know, you should maybe you should um, just kind of after school, high school, you know, if you don't know what you want to do, go to work for a couple of years and kind of mm -hmm. get a feel for what you want to do. And then once you figure out what you really want to do, mm -hmm. then you go to college. Because yeah. if you just go jump right in, it's like you just waste some time and money. And for right. me, when I went to college, I didn't necessarily know what I wanted to do until like my senior year when I started doing the broadcast. Mm -hmm. I mean, I always loved sports, but um, I, I was I was uh, information management. Mm -hmm. So I was dealing with computers. And, and when people ask me what I want to do, I just said I just did it for money. Yeah. And that was the wrong reason. So you once hear a I, lot about those who go into engineering as well, mm -hmm. knowing that, you know, maybe their their strong suit is not into those engineering classes and maybe they're you know doing poorly. And it's like, it's okay to switch your major. Not everybody has to mm -hmm. be an engineer per se. There's so many different careers out there that could be very fruitful for people that they don't even consider because it's not something they've been exposed to. And so you're right. Sometimes we have to make sure that we are communicating the need for young people to start early, being exposed to so many different career paths and different options mm -hmm. so that they can become more informed about how in which they want to chart their pathway. Mm -hmm. And that's actually something I'm in the process of writing my own book where I've talked about a lot of these different things. And, awesome. and I said that it's for me, I feel like in certain ways that it's. We kind of put a lot of pressure on young kids. You know, it's hard to ask a 17, 18 year old what they want to do for the rest of their life That's because it's true. because as adults, we change our careers That's all true. the time. So yeah. it's just like we can't really put that much pressure on a kid to figure out what they want to do at such a young mm -hmm. age. I just mm -hmm. feel like we need to. You're right. And there's out. a lot of people now that are, you know, doing things like a gap year, you know, from high school to before they decide whether to go to college, whether to start working immediately. And, you know, but that, that that's even a privilege in and of itself. Some mm -hmm. people can't do the gap year, you know. Yeah. Um, and so I think about my husband, for example, he's a graduate of um, Clemson University, but he went through the Air Force ROTC program. And mm -hmm. so he did his four years. They paid for his college. And once he graduated, he then um, enrolled in the Air Force as an officer. He served his time for four years. It gave us a tremendous start. And um, and then, you know, we doubled, you know, dabbled into other things from there. But, um, you know, everyone's pathway is different. And that's Absolutely. okay. And I think that we have to make sure that our young people recognize that there's not necessarily a right or wrong. It's what fits your situation the best. Absolutely. Just a few more questions and then we'll wrap it up. Okay. What is the biggest sacrifice that you've had to make so far to get to where you are? Oh, um, so I'm a mom of two. I'm a wife of 22 years. And when I decided to go back to school to um, pursue my doctorate degree, I was working full time. You know, I was a mom of two. Um, I was a wife. I was still heavily involved in uh, the community in many different capacities. That was a big time commitment. And it was a sacrifice that not only I had to make, my entire family had to make it, you know. Um, but it was something that we all did together. It wasn't always easy. It was, you know, more about the journey and the perseverance than anything. Um, but I was, I was very strategic, and I knew that it was part of um, the process for me to establish myself um, as a um, thought leader in this space of diversity, equity, and inclusion for the benefits of organizational leadership and management. And so it was it was very calculated decision. And that was a big sacrifice. There were times that I certainly um, thought to myself, is this worth it? You know, and then I thought about my children. And mm -hmm. I thought, do I want them seeing mom quit? Do I want them, you know, seeing mom complain about something that quite honestly um, was a blessing in disguise. I just didn't feel it necessarily at the moment because I was in the trenches of trying to get the work done and get my dissertation defended and, you know, all of the research and, and it was a lot, but, um, I feel like nothing worth having is comes without a sacrifice. And so I was, um, I was proud to have been done with that process, but even more proud to say that I endured the process. You know, it was more about the endurance than it was about the degree itself. <laughs> when you, when you look back, at everything that you've accomplished and, and everything you went through, what would you tell your younger self if you had to do something different? What would you tell your younger self to do different? Enjoy the process more. You know, mm -hmm. I think that we spend so much time 
trying to get through the process that we don't take the time to really appreciate what the process is teaching us, what the process is um, doing to help grow us. We just want to get through it, get through it. And, um, you know, and it, that, that's a hard balance because while you're in the process, you're dealing with, you know, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And sometimes that the process is not something that is easy. Um, it's, it's more so the, the hard parts of it. <laughs> but um, enjoy the process. Don't try to rush it so much to where you miss out on all of those teachable moments and all of those small lessons that sometimes are maybe hidden. Um, so enjoy the process. Enjoy the journey. What characteristics do you think entrepreneurs need to have to be successful? Yeah. Well, you've heard me mention the words grit and resiliency time and time again. That, that's first and foremost. I think another thing is, is confidence. You have to be confident. And not so much in your ability to get it right, but your ability, ability to endure the process. You know, entrepreneurship is hard. It is hard. And you also have to be willing to endure feelings of isolation. So you need to kind of surround yourself with a tribe of people that understand what you're going through, Mm -hmm. that can empathize with, um, you know, the journey that you're on and that can provide some level of support because, you know, it's not so to where you always can go to your employees and talk about your challenges because you don't want them to fear that, okay, am I going to close my doors any day now? Mm -hmm. But sometimes that is a reality of what you're facing. Am I going to be able to make payroll? Am I going to be able to, you know, continue to have the capacity to scale appropriately and to meet the needs and demands of our clients and our customers that we're servicing? And all of those things can be really, really hard. You know, I tell people that just because you're good at your craft and your trade, that may give you the passion for entrepreneurship, but it may not give you the business acumen to be able to know how to grow your business and take it to the next level. And so it is hard work mm-hmm. and it is not for the faint of heart. It's not for someone who's looking for success overnight. And you certainly sacrifice a lot as an entrepreneur. So a lot of, of, of um, solid planning um, is really important, but it's, it's also a lot about the psyche too, just getting mm-hmm. your mind ready to um to know that you're going to have rough days and hard days absolutely but you stay at it i like to ask everybody that comes on to the podcast what what is your blueprint for success <laughs> um faith first and foremost um being very intentional i think that there's so much power in intentionality um the title of my first book that i author is Intentional Inclusionist, and it really deals with the premise of the work of of inclusion and diversity does not happen organically. We have to be intentional, but that applies to anything that we do in life. So that's part of my blueprint. You have to be intentional. Mm -hmm. And um, that that has a certain look about it. It means you're being very calculated. You're being very strategic. You are exercising forethought. You are imagining, envisioning the end result. You are tracking and you're putting intervention strategies in place if you see that you are off track from where you need to be. Uh, but it's all about this due diligence in the planning process. Um, and it's, you know, I, I mentioned confidence before. It's all about being confident in yourself. Um, you know, I, I can I can potentially bet on a lot of people and a lot of things. But where I feel my most confident is when I'm betting on myself because Absolutely. I know myself, you know. And um, and so that, that, that has been the blueprint of success, having people in your corner. No one gets to success on their own. People always have to have people in their corner to help push them, encourage them. Um, and just the wherewithal to keep going no matter what. It's my final two questions. Um, the first one is, well, it's, it's hard to believe that this year is almost over and it's about right. to be 2019. So my first one is, what is your New Year's resolution? And then after that one, what is your ultimate goal? Yeah, those are great questions. And I, you know, I, the, the fourth quarter is when I usually spend a lot of time um, retreating and thinking about what do I want to do differently for the upcoming year? What are some new goals or some existing goals that I want to evolve? And so I'm still kind of in that process. But, um, you know, from a New Year's resolution standpoint, I, it, it sounds kind of cliche-ish, but I think that whatever I endeavor to do, I want to elevate excellence. So whether that means that my parenting skills, you know, again, I'm getting to the point now where we have we have little people in our home, little grown people. Mm-hmm. You know, I have a daughter that's a freshman in college, and now it's not about really being her mom. It's about being a coach to her, you know, being a sounding board to her, but allowing her to make her own decisions in a way where she's, you know, getting perspective, but then she's using her own brain power to reach conclusions on her own. And that's a slightly different type of relationship than a mother of like a young child, a young daughter. And the same for my son. He's a junior in high school, but he is slowly but surely starting to find his way as well. So 
I'm elevating excellence for me as a as a wife, for me yeah. as a parent, for me as a business leader, for me as a community advocate and leader. Just whatever I identify as um, important touch points for me to align myself with. I want to make sure that I'm not just doing it, but I'm doing it in a very intentional way that allows me to gain impact. There's a difference between activity versus impact, and I talk about that a lot. I even have a white paper on it, and so that requires a great deal of. Um, drive to want to take it to the next level you know i don't i celebrate success but i only stay there for a period of time because then i'm always like it's on to the next thing mm -hmm. and so my new year's resolutions continue to elevate excellence in anything that i put my hands and heart to and i would say um one of my goals um I do want to diversify my clientele a little bit more uh, from a business perspective. Um, I released my second book this year, so I don't have any desires to, in 2019, to author another book, maybe some additional white papers and articles, of course. But, um, you know, we have goals within our foundation to want to impact more lives. And so we're slowly but surely working on ways in which we can effectively do that. But generally speaking, it's just to have greater impact, greater impact. That's not just touching, uh, you know, my immediate family, but that's touching the masses, you know, um, and really making a difference in that regard. All right. Thank you, Mrs. Why I really appreciate the opportunity to come sit sure. with you. I'm glad we could finally yeah, sit down absolutely. once absolutely. I appreciate your interest in wanting to connect. Oh, so absolutely. Thank you. I just love reaching out to people. You know, I'm I'm still early in the early stages of my career, and I just love to, like, sit down with other entrepreneurs and just soak up all the knowledge. Before we get out of here, do you have any social media that you want to give out so people can find you or any advice you want to give out at all? Yes. I think the best way for me to, because I'm on just about every social media platform, so the best way is to direct people to my website, which is mikawhite.com. Very okay. simple. My name.com, and it's N-I-K-A, white, just like the color. And on my website, there are direct links to um, follow me on all of my social media platforms, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, etc. So I look forward to connecting with anyone that would love to um, be a part of my network. All right. And there you have it. Hope you guys enjoyed it. Until next time, this is the Cross Line Podcast. Keep chasing dreams. Thank you for listening.